0: Have you, ever, have you ever been around uh, somebody who had this genuine joy about them that it was like just contagious to you? Like, and I'm not talking about, you know, there, there, are, there are some people, you know, that they're, they're working at joy and maybe they put on a smile like, and you're like, I don't know if that's real, but there's other people, you get around them and you're like, man, that joy, there's something in that person. <laughs> like, I want what they have. I don't know if you've ever known anyone like that, but uh, there's someone I know that I love dearly that many of you know who has a joy, and he had no idea I was going to use him today as an example, but that's Brent Baldwin. Uh, Brent has served as one of our elders for years, and one of the things about Brent is he has this contagious joy in his life. In fact, I remember the first time I met Brent, uh, he and Lisa and their family had just started coming to Ethos since when we were over at the cannery, and I remember I'm at the cannery, and I'm up front uh, afterwards, and everybody's talking, and, and I see this guy that I'd seen around for a few weeks, but we'd never met, and he just had this big old smile on his face, and we locked eyes, and he's like... And he's like he's like waving at me. And I'm like, either that guy's on something or he has something that I need to know more about. And good news, it was the second one. And I realized in my time with Brent, like there's just something in him. He has this joy in his heart. And the more I'm around him, the more encouraged I get. The more I'm around him, the more I want what he has. I remember going to lunch with him for the very first time and he starts telling me the story of what God has done in his life. And he's literally moved to tears as he's talking about the work of Jesus in his life. And this is a regular occurrence for Brent. When he starts talking about the work of God in his life or someone else, this joy wells up in him that comes out in tears. He's not crying for sadness. His heart is so moved by the goodness of Jesus. And when I'm around him, I'm like, I want that. It's contagious. You know, this morning, we are continuing our series called Experiencing Jesus. And we have been this summer just looking at different attributes, characteristics of who Jesus is. And you know, I, 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 we've looked at several different things and uh, for most of them, there are things that we can imitate, things that we can emulate. And this morning, we're gonna be looking at the joy of Jesus. And we go, wait, how do you imitate joy? And that's some of what we're gonna try to unpack of how do you imitate something that you feel? And so we're gonna be looking at the joy of Jesus and looking at what he has to say about his joy in John chapter 15. And so we're gonna read uh, verses nine through like 14 or 13, and then we're gonna skip down to verse 17. But I wanna set some context for you here as we read this, just so you know what's happening in Jesus' life at this moment. Okay, he has just enjoyed his last meal with his closest friends and they're on a walk together. And he knows he's walking to the place where all of his friends are going to abandon him, betray him. He's walking to the place where he's gonna be arrested, falsely accused, where he's gonna be led into captivity and they're going to beat him mercilessly. He knows that he's one day away from being hung on a cross and suffering an agonizing death. Now, I don't know about you. If I knew that's what was coming for me in the next 24 hours, I know what my, uh, (laughs) how I would look. (laughs) I know what my posture would be. I know what my heart would be feeling. But I want you to just listen to the words of Jesus in this moment of his life. Starting in verse nine, he says this, as the father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain or abide, some of your Bibles might say, in my love You are my friends if you do what I command. In verse 17, this is my command, love each other. So these are the words of Jesus the day before he's going to die. And you may go, okay, I heard a whole lot about love. I heard a whole lot about like obeying commands. Like, why did you pick this passage to talk about joy? You know, I think sometimes we read this passage of Jesus and we get so, there's so much about loving Jesus, so much about loving each other, so much about obeying the commands of Jesus that we can fly right past something key that he says about joy. And so we're going to really zoom in on verse 11. Verse 11 says, I have told you this so that what? So that my... My joy, my joy may be in you. And then it may complete just before his death, just before being abandoned by his friends. This is what Jesus wants for his friends. He's like, I want you to have my joy. sometimes maybe we don't think of Jesus as being a joyful person. You know, we use this word man of sorrows because he endured the sorrow of the world on his own shoulders. But what's remarkable about this man of sorrows is that he was also marked by extreme joy. And I want you to imagine if you're Jesus' friend and he is just this sorrowful kind of glum, kind of down person, and he's like, I want you to have my joy. (laughs) It's like, "Eh, that doesn't sound like very good news. I don't know that I want that joy. No, he's like, I want you to have my joy. I want my joy, what I have, what you see happening in me right now, I want it to be in you. And I want it to be complete, not lacking at all. This is Jesus' desire for joy in your life, in our lives. Now, we don't have time this morning to necessarily unpack all the, all the distinctives between joy and happiness. Although I do recommend in our last Advent series, back in December, Dave did a sermon, it was called The Advent of Joy, where he talked about the difference in joy and happiness. But the main thing I want us to see right here is that this joy is not contingent upon Jesus's circumstances. He's looking at his friends filled up with joy and he's like, I want you to have what I have. Right before he's about to be killed. There's something about this joy that's not dependent upon his circumstances. You see, Jesus is not offering here a fleeting emotion. He is offering a sustained emotion. And I believe, beloved, which, by the way, somebody asked me this week, why do you always call us beloved? I, I call you beloved because you are the beloved of God Almighty, We hear the voice too often that you're not good enough, that you're guilty, that you're condemned. You should be ashamed. And so beloved, I will call you beloved to remind us of our identity in Jesus, okay? So here in this moment, beloved Jesus is offering a sustained emotion. And if there was ever a time in the history of humanity that we need the sustained feeling and emotion of joy, it is right now. This week, I did a lot of digging on joy, or more particularly, I was looking at the joylessness of our society, of our culture, and I was shocked by what I found. It led me down some rabbit holes of really exploring depression and the rates of depression in our culture. Now, I wanna put a disclaimer on this right at the very beginning. I'm not standing up here as a psychiatrist, Uh, I do have a background in clinical counseling as a marriage and family therapist, but I'm not even standing up here as that. I'm just standing up here as a guy who's trying to wrestle with the words of Jesus who wants to offer us joy. And we need to talk about depression and what it's doing in our culture. And I say this, I'm gonna share some things and I show them all very humbly, okay? And if I say anything that sounds offensive or if you are, if you are wrestling through depression, if I say anything that, that either makes light of your predicament, please forgive me, have grace, because that is not my intention. But I want you just to see what's happening in our culture. I found this really interesting study about the rates of depression. And they found that in the early months of 2020, so in the early months of the pandemic, they studied the rates of depression. Some of you may remember they were saying, hey, there's actually two pandemics going on. There's the COVID-19 pandemic, and then there's the mental health crisis pandemic. Because what they found was that the rates of depression in America went from 8.5% and it tripled to 27.8% of American adults. 27.8% of American adults experiencing depression. Boston University kept following the trends all the way through to the end of 2021. And what they found was that the, the jump slowed down a little bit, but the increase only continued that by the end of 2021, they found that 32.8% of American adults were experiencing depression. Beloved, this is one out of every three American adults experiencing depression. It's a staggering result. We go, man, this is just ripping our society up. It's like just moving through our culture. Depression, what is this thing? Where does it come from? What causes it? You know, It's what's interesting, all the way back to the 1950s, medical experts have been trying to figure out, hey, how do you deal with this thing called, called depression? And the assumption was that our brains are just simply a, a mix of chemical reactions and chemical um, interactions, and so there should be some sort of chemical solution to deal with depression. And so there's been all kinds of advances in finding antidepressant drugs to deal with depression. And some of those have been amazing and they have changed people's lives. So you can imagine the shock I felt two weeks ago before I was even prepping for this sermon when I was reading through the headlines and I saw this study, which felt like it should have been a bombshell study, but I heard very little about, where a group of psychiatrists in London, after decades of research, came out and said, hey, actually, depression is not caused by a chemical imbalance in the brain. I was shocked, and I kept reading, and this was the conclusion that these doctors came up with. They said, we can safely say that after vast amount of research conducted over several decades, there's no convincing evidence that depression is caused by serotonin abnormalities, particularly by lower levels or reduced activity of serotonin. And we go, wait a minute. Ah." So this thing is, is ripping through our culture through American adults, and the thing that we thought would finally deal with it They're now saying that it doesn't even deal with it. It feels hopeless. And we go, what is happening where depression is just ravaging us? I think there are several things happening in our culture. I wanna take just a minute to look at some of the things in our culture that are producing these, these crazy levels of depression in American adults. One of the things is the intense focus on the individual. We live in Western societies. We live in the middle of what's called radical individualism or some call it individual expressionism. And, and this, this whole idea is that you, we as a person, as people, what makes us who we are is the center, central psychological core about what we decide that we are. And the individual ultimately is the master of deciding who I am, what I am, what I do, and what makes me me. This is radical individualism. Now, we could talk about that forever, and you've heard us talk about this before, but here's what's interesting is that as, as um, I didn't even know this was a field, but the ethno-medical field, how's that for a word, uh, ethno-medical research has looked at the difference in depression rates in Western, more individualistic societies, and Eastern, more communal societies, and they have found this staggering difference in the depression rates that Western individualistic societies have staggeringly higher rates of depression than more communal traditional cultures. And here's the quote from one of these researches. It says, because people from communal cultures are not encouraged to place too much importance on personal gratification, they, tend, uh, they do not spend as much time feeling frustrated about their failure to achieve personal success because they're not encouraged to place so much importance on personal gratification. I mean, how much time is thrown at us, how many narratives are thrown at us that personal gratification is the thing? That's what we're told to live for. And what these researchers are saying is that in these more communal cultures, because they don't focus on that, they don't spend as much time feeling frustrated about their inability to achieve the success that they want. So what's happening? Well, this, this intense focus on self, the individual. Stemming out of that is this kind of renewed idea of the pursuit of happiness, that happiness is the ultimate end. That is the ultimate thing that every individual person and in radical individualism should be striving for, Now, happiness is good, and it's great to want to make other people happy, but when happiness is held up as the ultimate thing that humanity could strive for, it does something to us. In fact, it was kind of interesting. i read all these studies that said the more happiness is emphasized as the ultimate end goal, the higher the rates of depression went amongst those being studied. Now, why does that make sense? Because when happiness is held out as the ultimate success, Anytime other emotions, competing emotions, sadness, fear, loneliness, worry, anxiety, grief, when these things come, I'm being told happiness means I'm good, I'm successful. I I don't want to show any of those hard emotions. And so, what do I do? I shove them inside and I put on a mask. and depression just thrives in that kind of environment so radical individualism the the pursuit of happiness no matter what the cost these things are not changing the rates of depression what is happening in our culture this is the this these are the waters that we're flailing in right now And the medical experts don't seem to know exactly. They all kind of disagree. And it's in these waters as we're flailing that Jesus grabs a life preserver and says, hey, I've got something that I wanna help you with. He's holding out joy as the life raft that will help us in these times of drastic depression across our culture. So Jesus says, I want my joy to be in you. I want it to be in you. And I want it to be complete, lacking nothing. How do we get this joy of Jesus? Before we can talk about getting it, we've got to have a proper understanding of what it is. What is the joy of Jesus? But the word here in John 15 is the Greek word kara, which if you know my family, that's the name of my youngest daughter. This is where her name comes from. The word kara literally means, the literal translation is grace recognized or a joy because of grace it has the Greek word grace in the root there. A joy because of grace. Grace recognize that when there's this recognition of grace in your life, that there's this response of joy in your heart. This is a simple definition of joy or kara, the Greek word. Um, uh, pastor and speaker, author, John Piper had a definition for joy that I really liked. I kind of, changed it around a little bit in a way that made it simpler for me to understand. But this was his, basically his definition was this, a good feeling in the soul caused by recognition of Christ's work in your life, in others' lives, or in the world. I love that, a good feeling in the soul What's it caused by? Man, by recognizing the grace of Jesus, the work of Jesus in yourself or in others. Now, there's several things about this definition I think that are really important, but the first thing we gotta, gotta look at is that joy is a feeling. It's an emotion. I think sometimes it's kinda held out as something a little different than that, but the truth is joy is this feeling that you experience. It's an emotion. It's not an idea. It's not a construct. It's not even a behavior. Now, we, we rejoice when we have joy, that's the behavior, but the feeling, the emotion is joy. Now, the interesting thing about feelings, about emotions, is that you can't like make yourself feel a feeling. <laughs> you can't push a button and cause feelings to well up inside of you. No, you, have, you actually have very little control over your emotions. Emotions aren't good or bad, they just are. Uh, as a therapist, I, always tell, I would always tell my clients, hey, no, your emotions, what you're feeling, it's like they are a reflex. You know, when you go to the doctor and he gets that weird little hammer and he hits your knee and you're, it's supposed to, your leg's supposed to do this thing, it's a reflex. You didn't make your knee do it. It's like that doctor has magic powers over your body and your leg goes out. Now, your heart is like, your, 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 scent, your place of feeling is like a reflexive organ. And what happens is when, when things happen around you, your heart just reflexes with emotions. I'll give you an example of this. I remember um, in 2012, my family went camping and it was my wife and I and our kids at the time, we just had our two boys. Uh, Elijah was two, Torin was five months old and we decided to go camping. What the heck, you know? (laughs) We'll take our little kids and go out into the woods and we went to Manning Park in uh, British Columbia. We lived in Canada at the time and if you know anything about Manning Park, you know they are well known for frequent bear sightings. And so I remember one night we're sitting at our campsite and uh, we set up our tent and the sleeping arrangement was hilarious. It was the first time we'd ever been camping with kids that age. And so we, we brought our little fold up crib, our pack and play. We set that up in the tent and that was where Elijah was gonna sleep. And then uh, we're like, what are we gonna do with Torin? We actually didn't even think about it before we got there. are like, where's Torin gonna sleep? He's five months old. So we just opened our suitcase and had like our clothes in it. And we just like <laughs> great place for a five month old to sleep. So I remember one night uh, we're laying in our tent and as we're laying there, I wake up, I'm, I'm fast asleep. And I wake up to have Amy's hand put over my mouth. And she says, there's a bear outside of our tent. Don't make a sound. And I wake up and I hear this and this claw like scraping the ground. And this bear literally rubs up against our tent. And immediately, my heart starts pounding. My mind starts racing like, what am I gonna do? To protect my kid, what am I gonna do? To protect my wife, what am I gonna do? All these things. And in that moment, I was feeling what? Fear. Ah, there's a bear outside of my tent. Now, let me tell you what that was not like. I did not have to go, oh, interesting. There's a bear outside. Okay, when there's a bear, they can hurt people. I've got kids, I should feel afraid. Ah. like, no, that's not how emotions work. We don't think through them and make them respond. No, it's reflexive. Fear just welled up in me. The bear just made his way, by the way. He went, just walked off. We told the ranger the next morning. Nothing came of it. Makes for a great story though. But you know, fear was not something I thought about. It was something my heart responded with. This is how feelings and emotions work. And the reality is the Bible is actually filled with commands uh, that that we are supposed to do things that we're not able to be controlled. Like rejoice in the Lord. Well, that means I gotta feel joy. Fear the Lord. Oh, well, I can't conjure that up. Like, what does that look like? Be grateful. Oh, gratitude. I've got to feel, oh, how do I make myself feel gratitude? There's all these places in the Bible we're instructed to do things that are rooted in our feelings and we are not able to control those feelings. And what this means, beloved, is that we are dependent upon Jesus for these things. We're dependent upon him. When Jesus looks at his friends and he says, I'm telling you this so that my joy will be in you. What he's saying is, I want you to have this. You can't conjure it up, you can't fake it. I want you to have it. When you don't have it, you don't need to feel guilty about it because you can't make it happen. It is totally dependent upon the grace of Jesus. And so how do we get it? You're like, Aaron, this is the worst. You're telling us to have joy and now there's nothing we can do. There are things we can do to position ourselves to receive the free gift that Jesus is holding out to us. How do we experience the joy of Jesus? I'm gonna tell you three things. I'm gonna tell you these three things are radically counterintuitive to the narrative of our culture they will feel like the opposite of what society always says to do. I'm just gonna tell you up front. Number one, how do we experience the joy of Jesus? And it is found in a life that's focused on abiding in Jesus. A life that is focused on abiding in Jesus Chapter 15 of John, Jesus is all about talking about how to abide in him. Some of your will say remain, but what it means is this place of just dwelling with Jesus, staying in him, rooted in him, connected to him. Abiding in Jesus means that we give our mind, our heart, our energy to reflecting on the realities of who Jesus is. I'll say a simple way to describe this. It means that our life is focused on what he has done what he is doing and what he will do. That when I let my mind be infatuated with, take note of, look at, explore what Jesus has done, what he is doing and what he will do, I'm I'm looking for the grace of Jesus. I'm looking for it, I'm looking at it, it's already there. So what has he done? Very briefly, I'll give you a few verses. What he has done. The first thing is look at Colossians chapter two, verse 13 to 15. What has Jesus done? Well, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all of our sins. He canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness. All those things that make us, that bring on guilt and shame, make us feel bad. He's like, I've dealt with all of it. I've dealt with all of it. He's taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the power of the cross. And what this means is everything, remember the very beginning of the sermon, I was praying and I, just, I didn't plan on praying this, but I'm, I'm praying that the Lord led me, is that sometimes there are things in our lives that keep us from seeing the goodness of God. Sometimes it's sin, living defiantly against God. Sometimes it's old wounds. Sometimes it's false beliefs about ourselves, about God, what he's like. But regardless of what it is, what this passage tells us is, we wanna know what God has done. What has Jesus done? He has taken everything that could separate you from the love of God And he has let it separate him. And he's nailed to a cross in agony and death, taking our sins upon himself. Now there will be times in your life where because you you carry guilt and shame that this good news of what he has done, it will stir you to joy. That's what happened when I sat over lunch with Brent Baldwin and he told the story about what Jesus has done in his life and he's moved to tears of joy. There'll be seasons of your life where you, like we forget about this. The thing about joy is that it's grace recognized. And so there'll be ebbs and flows. But when we're rooted in the joy of the Lord, it's like we're able to recognize and recall, this is what he's done. That joy may not look like jumping and shouting and screaming and laughing and smiling and, te- and crying. It may not look like any of those things. It is this condition of my heart where I go, oh yeah, oh yeah, what has he done for me? Yes, Jesus, thank you, Lord. So it's it's focusing on what he has done. It's focusing on what he is doing. I love Hebrews chapter 10, verses 12 through 14. He says, but when this priest, this is Jesus, when this priest Jesus had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, what he has done, he sat down at the right hand of God. What is Jesus doing right now? We're gonna unpack this more in another uh, sermon in this series. Right now he is seated at the right hand of God Almighty, the God of the universe. And since that time, since he was seated at the Father's right hand, he waits for his enemies to be made a footstool. He's waiting for the moment when every source of evil will be put in submission under his feet, being crushed by his glory. For by one sacrifice, listen to this, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. What is he doing right now? You know that when you surrendered your life to him, for those of you that are followers of Jesus, when you gave your life to him through the cross, you were made perfect. Do you know that? Flawless. Blameless before God. He looks at you and you're the apple of his eye. He loves you. What is he doing right now? He says we are being made holy. So we've been made perfect. And you're going, I know you say I've been made perfect, but Aaron, you don't know all the junk I've got in my life. You don't know the stuff that I'm still tripping me up. And he's like, oh, doesn't matter. You've been made perfect and you are being made holy. Jesus is actively working out the sin. He's actively working out the wounds. He's actively working out all the things that have hurt you. He's making you holy. What is abiding? Oh, it's letting my heart, my mind, Focus on all that Jesus has done. Looking for all that he is doing in my life and in others' lives around me. And third, it is, it is what he will do. Abiding is looking at what he will do. What will Jesus do? To put it up very briefly, Christ will return. <laughs> He's coming. I love the way Paul writes about this in 1 Thessalonians, or 2 Thessalonians 3. He says this, all this is evidence. He's been talking about God's grace in these believers in 2 Thessalonians. He says, all this is evidence that God's judgment is right. And as a result, listen to this, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God. <laughs> what will he do? He will count you worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are now suffering. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you. And he's talking about those who resist the movement of God in the world, those who stand in defiance to him. He says, justice is actually coming and I'll be the one to bring it on every person who causes harm and dissension and war and abuse and all of the injustice that we see in the world. His trouble is coming on them and he will give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. And this will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his angels. Beloved, do you know he's coming for us? He's coming. He will deal with all the brokenness, all the pain, all the sadness, all the woundedness, all the injustice. He's the only one qualified to deal with it and he's coming to deal with it. And he will count us worthy of the kingdom of God, the renewed heaven and earth. That's what he's going to do. And so, so how do you experience the joy of Jesus? It is a life that is committed to abiding in Jesus by thinking about, meditating on, reflecting on all that he has done, all that he is doing, and all that he will do. So one, abiding with Jesus. But it's not just that. The second part of receiving Jesus' joy is it is found in a life surrendered to Jesus and his truth. <clears throat> a life fully surrendered to Jesus. A life that's surrendered to Jesus. You know, this is what he says over and over again in John 15, right? But before and after, he talks about his joy being in us. He says this, he says, listen, if you, if you remain in me, you will obey my commands. If you love me, you'll obey my commands. He's like so clear about this. He's going, listen, life with me, walking with me means you surrender to what I say is true. He says, I want you to be surrendered to my ways, like obey my commands, I love the way Psalm 19 verse eight says this about the ways of God. Listen to this. The precepts or the ways of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. And when Jesus says, if you love me, you'll obey my commands, he's not trying to burden us. So often the perception of God and Jesus and religion and Christianity is that, oh, they're just trying to burden you with all the rules and all the laws, do this and do that, thou shalt not, thou shalt, it's not a burden. Jesus is going, no, 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 no. I, I am the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life, no one comes to the Father except through me, no one finds life or joy apart from me, so come to me, submit to these ways because they will bring joy to your heart. Many of us are hindered from joy because we are spinning our wheels in this culture trying to discover our truth. Trying to discover what makes me, me. How, how can I be an individual that's different than anybody else and find that unique thing that will make me be alive? Beloved, Jesus is that. He is the truth. There is no other truth. And a life surrendered to him is just filled with joy. It doesn't mean that everything's always gonna go perfect. In fact, he says, in this life, you'll have trouble. But take heart, I've overcome the world. A life of joy is found when we surrender to the ways of God because we begin experiencing the grace of Jesus in our lives. I don't know about you, but I have a really hard time surrendering completely and obeying the commands of Jesus. My, my own awareness of how hard it is for me to do that makes me recognize the grace of Jesus when I do do it. My flesh is unable to do it on its own. So when I do it, when I'm living in line with Jesus, I'm like, that is the grace of Jesus. It is not me. That produces joy within me. A life committed to abiding in Jesus. A life surrendered to Jesus and his truth. And the third thing is a life deeply rooted in Christ-centered community. A life that is rooted in Christ-centered community. Look what Jesus says. I mean, right after he, he says this thing about I want my joy to be in you, he says, my command is this, love yourself and promote yourself all that you can until you are the greatest. <laughs> I'm just seeing if anybody's still paying attention. <laughs> is that what it says? <laughs> no, he says, listen, he says, my command is this, love each other, love each other as I've loved you. Greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. This is my command. My command is to love each other. Oh, do you want the joy of Jesus in your life? Then give of yourself for the other. Something deep, deep, is triggered within us as human beings when we stop living for ourselves and start living for those around us to see them fulfilled, to see them lifted up to Jesus. Even when it costs me, when I have to lay down my life for the sake of someone else, it is something is triggered in me. It's joy. It's counterintuitive. It feels the opposite of what should be true. It was interesting, I found an article Online, that was not written from a Christian perspective at all. And they were trying to distinguish between the difference in happiness and joy. And they said, they said, you know, they, they talked about happiness being fleeting and joy being contentedness and all this. But then they had this amazing quote. They said, witnessing or achieving selflessness to the point of personal sacrifice frequently triggers joy. It's from a worldly perspective. Jesus is like, know, oh, yes, look at what I'm doing right now. For the joy set before me, I'm going to endure all pain, suffering, sin, agony, and death for you. And he's like, I want you to have my joy. I want you to have it complete and not lacking. How do we get this joy, a life abiding in Jesus? Take time in your life. Read the word. Meditate upon his grace, what he's done, what he's doing, what he will do. Talk with your... Talk with your friends about it. Talk with your roommates about it. Talk with your spouses and your kids. Talk about it all the time. Abide in Jesus. Surrender yourself to him. If there's an area of your life where you are resistant to the ways of God, stop resisting, repent, give yourself to him. Obey his commands. And then third, let's be rooted in community together. Living, not selfishly, but selflessly. This is where we find the joy of Jesus and how it's made complete. So this morning, we're gonna to come to the table of grace, take communion. We're gonna take the bread, we're gonna take the cup. And what I wanna invite you to do as you get the bread and the cup. One, just thank Jesus for his faithfulness. Take some time to recognize his grace. Thank him for what he's done. But then take time just to testify to each other. Recognize the grace of Jesus in each other's lives. Recognize where you see him at work. Testify to what you see him doing. It is a life where we give ourselves to this that we will begin to experience deeply the joy that Jesus has for us. So let me pray for us. Lord, we love you. Lord, you are faithful and true. You have joy unending for us. It feels so hard to reach, Lord. This life, there's so many things at us that just feel so challenging. But Lord, we, we, wanna just, we don't want to like live in la-la land, but we want to we be able to see the hard stuff and talk about the hard stuff while staying connected to your joy because of what you've done, what you're going to do, what you are doing. Lord, would you make us a joy-filled people? Not because we're, we're trying to feel something that's not there, but because we're responding and recognizing what you're doing. So Lord, as we come to the table, would you give us even insight right now as we take of your body and your blood would you stir up joy in our hearts as we recognize the, your grace in our lives? We love you, Father. We love you. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. I love you, Ethos. Let's grab communion together and there'll be some instructions on the screen for you as you commune with one another. chairs in every other row and so i just invite you guys to grab communion take one pass it down and then once they're all handed out we'll stand and we'll transition to worship